Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Admiral, how do you assess... How do you assess the issue of sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces, and what's your personal reaction as a career officer and former Vice Chief of Staff? Yeah, um, well, I I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the institution is in a crisis. And, um, you know, there are many things that uh, militaries depend upon uh, for um, effective operations and leadership and among those are uh, loyalty and confidence, or confidence and trust. And uh, at the moment, I think it's fair to say that uh, there's a significant lack of confidence and trust, probably in the rank and file, uh, certainly amongst those who've been um, victimized by uh, these uh, these actions that we're hearing about. And uh, I think it's having a, a significant and probably lasting impact on the institution. For me personally, um, it's uh, it's heart wrenching. I'm I'm truly gutted by this, and uh, I um, I'm both saddened and uh, and frustrated all at the same time. Admiral Norman, the um, the Minister of National Defense has announced, and you just heard the clip, part of the clip an independent investigation into sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces to be headed by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour. There already was a report on sexual misconduct within the CAF issued in 2015 by another Supreme Court Justice, Marie Deschamps. What are your thoughts on launching the Arbour investigation and what happened to the recommendations by Justice Deschamps? Okay, well... Um, I was serving in 2015. I was the commander of the Navy uh, when Madame Deschamps uh, arrived on the scene and, cert- and when she um, presented her findings. And uh, I'll start with, with that, and then I'll address your, your other question uh, subsequently. Um, I can tell you that uh, at the time, um, we, uh, we failed. We failed to really embrace the significance of what we were being told um, my sense uh, is that uh, there was a reluctance to truly um, accept the gravity uh, of uh, the situation, and uh, certainly the implementation of the recommendations uh, subsequent to her report were um, piecemeal and um, not necessarily um, with all the seriousness and uh, gravity that they should have, should have been implemented. As it relates to the launching of yet another um, review, um, I, like many Canadians, have enormous respect for uh, Justice Arbour, and I'm sure she'll do a great job, but fundamentally I think this is um, uh, 
more political than practical. And um, my concern is that um, we, we we now have to wait uh, probably another 12 to 18 months. Uh, it, it may be shorter than that, but but the bottom line is that there's action that needs to be taken immediately and uh, waiting for her to um, to present whatever findings she's going to present. Um, I hope they're worth it because uh, the, the the men and women of the armed forces who are being affected by this, uh, they need action now. They need strong leadership now. And, and uh, waiting is probably not going to address their immediate concerns. You mentioned leadership. So we have the most senior officers in the military being spoken about and investigated. Was there a long-time concern among senior officers that some within the command structure of the Canadian Armed Forces were engaging in questionable sexual conduct? Yeah, this is... um, You look at these things in hindsight, and um, I personally... um, would not have imagined the extent to which uh, we're hearing the kinds of accusations and allegations that are coming out now. Um, You know, there are things that you believe there are things that might be true. And then there are things that you can prove. Um, And uh, part of this is generational in terms of how uh, the institution would have observed and, uh, reacted to uh, what was going on at the time. I I did not personally witness um, anything that would have been to the extremes that we're seeing now. Um, but my sense is that people would have known about some of these things. Um, it, it, it's a small community. Um, and I think that speaks to part of the problem uh, that's coming out uh, and has been coming out in the last few months. And I think that that is that uh, people are not necessarily acting um, in the most transparent and um, correct fashion um, when they believe something may have happened or when, in fact, they're presented with um, information that would lead them to uh, suspect that something's happened. So, you know, uh, it's, some of it is shocking, um, and certainly the impact on the uh, alleged victims is shocking. Um, Sadly, some of it isn't necessarily surprising, and then I know that's probably not what people want to hear, but I think it's true. Uh, Admiral Norman, recognizing that it's a different system to public law enforcement. Can you explain to us, please, how the investigative process works in the military? When, when, when complaints are brought forward, what happens within the military investigative or police service? Yeah, it's a great question, Roy. And I think um, part of the problem we're seeing and have seen over the last several months is the answer to that question is it depends. And um, it depends on a variety of factors. It depends on the nature of the allegation. It depends on who's making the complaint. Um, is is it uh, a victim uh, making an allegation? Is it somebody doing it as a third party? 
Is it the chain of command? Um, the bottom line is if you, if you and your listeners were to imagine uh, a scale of uh, investigative um, authorities, uh, investigative bodies, or at the less serious end of things, you would have um, an internal um, unit investigation. And at the top end of things, you would have a potential criminal um, investigation. Um, often these things are um, initially investigated and then turned over to um, the police, military police, either the uh, National Investigative Service or the military police uh, proper, uh, depending on the nature of things. Um, the internal investigations at the beginning um, often create problems because they either muddy the waters of the subsequent police investigation or they make judgments with respect to what may or may not have happened. They might decide that it's not worthy of a police investigation. And all of these things start to compound and make the situation more complicated than it probably needs to be. And certainly uh, these are contributors to this uh, lack of confidence uh, that has been um, underlying um, many of the things that have been reported uh, over the last several months. And then at the most serious end, of course, um, and also related to the, the potential rank of the alleged perpetrator, then you get into um, the more sensitive investigations by the National Investigative Service, um, which we're seeing as ongoing right now. So the bottom line is there are a whole series of factors that are taken into account. Um, it is far more complicated than it probably should be. And um, I think this is an area that definitely requires some focus. And I, I don't have um, a lot of confidence, notwithstanding the fact that they're good people and they're trying to do their best. Um, the military police and National Investigative Service are understaffed. Um, they're not as experienced or qualified as many of their civilian colleagues. Uh, they don't have um, the the sort of depth and breadth um, that uh, that is required, and we've seen some terrible reports recently of a complete lack of sensitivity as it relates to um, dealing with victims uh, of alleged uh, violence. And and so, to be honest, this is a, a key area that just has to be sorted out. That's a long answer, but uh, that's, that's the best I can give you. Yeah. Admiral Norman, were, were you ever made aware of sexual misconduct within the ranks at any level? And what would your responsibility have been as commander of the Navy and vice chief of staff? So the answer to your first question is yes. Um, and uh, sadly, you know, these types of things happen. Um, the nature of reporting is also an area that is a bit um, complicated and, and um, unclear sometimes. Um, and you would assume that being at the top of an organization, you, you, you would know everything that's going on. It's not always the case, um, and that's a problem in and of itself. Um, as far as actions are concerned, I mean, really... 
the chain of command um, has has a, a few responsibilities, and first of all is to take the allegation seriously, to deal with the um, the, the victim of of whatever the alleged um, crime, violence, infraction, harassment uh, might be, um, and then to ensure that it's properly investigated. But but then. The chain of command, to be honest, needs to stay the hell out of it. Um, and it, it's this is where um, you've got concerns about the independence of the investigators. Um, and I think a lot of that concern is legitimate. Uh, you, you've got to allow the investigations to happen independently. You've got to let the professionals do the best job that they can, notwithstanding the limitations um, that I described earlier. Um, and, and and then if if we're dealing with a, a more serious criminal or code of service discipline uh, infraction, um, then there is an independent judicial system inside the military that's supposed to deal with that. If we're dealing with the less serious end of things where it can be handled administratively, then you need to make sure that the, the proper administrative actions are taken. Um, but very much like the previous question, the, the short answer, which I didn't give you, is it really depends on the circumstances. What's your sense of how the issue of sexual misconduct in the armed forces is being conducted in Canada's parliament? Well, I mean, notwithstanding the, the clear seriousness of this issue, um, and I think it's important that, that, you know, we recognize that this is of great interest to Canadians, and, and it should be. Um, but we need to also understand that, that these are real issues, and these are real people that are being affected um, in, in, in all the dimensions of this challenge. So as, as much as it is um, perhaps interesting to watch and observe and comment on, uh, we can't lose sight of the fact as I said, that these are these are real people whose lives are being um, adversely affected and and potentially will be impacted for the rest of their lives. With that said, um, my observation is that, like like many things, um, that when we cross the threshold into the politicization of uh, key issues, um, I, I don't think they necessarily get the right focus um, and uh, that there is there's no question in my mind that this issue uh, has been politicized um, and um, you would imagine that that would be a good thing because it would draw extra heat and light um, and and uh, that would help um, but that's not always the case and um, I think I think one of the challenges in all of this is to separate um, the institutional issues from the personal and specific issues associated with the allegations and the individuals and the survivors and how they're looked after. And then the third component of this is the one that you're referring to, which is, you know, trying to get better understanding of who knew what when, what actions were taken, um, 
who's accountable, um, and and that process um, is is frustrating to watch. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's uh, disappointing, and I think Canadians um, deserve better. Ahmed, thank you for joining us uh, from New Delhi today. Let me ask you, first of all, in your words, how would you describe the scenes that you are seeing in India today as COVID-19 rampages through the country? I think uh, we are living in a hell. And, uh, you know, we are right now in a position where you could die at any moment because the healthcare system has failed. It, 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 uh, the government is nowhere to, to be seen. Uh, people are on their own. And right now, you know, if you see social media and people are trying to help each other just because of, you know, the carelessness of the government. Uh, and at the same time, you can see people dying on the roads because they, they, there's no oxygen, there's no there's no hospital beds, there's no proper equipment, and uh, the majority of the Indians are not vaccinated. So it's, it's horrific, and I think we are living through hell. How quickly did this develop? Because, as I recall, in February and perhaps early March, the situation in India, we were told, seemed to be reasonably, if not under control, then something close to being under control. No, you're right. Uh, I think the situation was under control uh, at that point of time. But I think after uh, after the mid-March, the, there were a couple of festi- big religious festivals where about... Uh, seven uh, million people gathered and took a dip in the holy waters of Ganges, which has uh, been named as a super spreader of this uh, COVID virus. And uh, the worst part is that it's a new strain. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's showing in the bodies in the form of uh, uh, pneumonia. And, uh, you know, as we speak, there were reports that <clears throat> Uh, the, the virus is not being detected on the RT-PCR test, which comes usually positive or negative. So you, one has to get a CT scan of your lungs in order to uh, detect the virus. Uh, the situation has spiraled into, you know, in, into a havoc for the, for the entire uh, India. What are things like, you mentioned the hospital and the healthcare system, the hospitals. What is it like in major hospitals, and I believe you're in New Delhi, so if if someone becomes ill and they make their way to a hospital, what will they encounter? There's no way you'll get a hospital bed right now in, in Delhi. That's the capital of India. <clears throat> because uh, uh, I've, I've been witnessing the scenes on the ground. We have visited uh, at least a dozen uh, uh, hospitals in, in and around Delhi. Uh, People are desperate to find hospital beds. People are desperate to find ICU uh, for their loved ones. But only those people are getting uh, hospital beds or sort of uh, medicine, medical uh, health care who are connected to the government or who know people, like the influential people. Otherwise, the poor people or the average people are dying on the roads. If you see the audio, uh, the, the videos, uh, around the uh, social media or international media, you see people are, you know, begging police, begging the hospital officials to take them. But I'll not blame the entire healthcare system because it was government's responsibility to to make sure that they have enough supplies of uh, medical equipment, oxygen, and the vaccination, so including the vital, including vital uh, uh, supplies of uh, medicine. 
it's it's out of the con- the situation is out of control right now. And what is the government doing? What is the government saying? I mean, it's, look, the the government is uh, indifferent to this situation because you know it's a right wing with the government at at the helm of the affairs, and they don't really care what people are saying right now. Just the the health I, I quote health minister of India that uh, the situation is under control. When obviously things are not under control, there were there were election mass rallies in West Bengal state of India where Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the Home Minister Amit Shah were uh, doing ra- mass rallies, and that was again a super spreader uh, for the COVID. So you have to understand. I mean, the country runs on the basis of its politics. Uh, the opposition leader like uh, Rahul Gandhi had, uh, uh, you know, uh, told and uh, basically uh, given a warning to the entire government and the administration that the things could go out of control if we do not, you know, uh, put a lockdown or at least uh, do vaccination. And right now, as we speak, the government does not have enough vaccinations for its own population, but they donated about 70 million vaccine doses in the month of February to other countries. So that's the irony of the situation right now. Is this happening right across India? Absolutely. If you see the cases are being reported across India, I mean, of course, the cases are lower in different states, but it's happening in each state of India and uh, you know, uh, there are there are reports, and if you see on the streets, the they are not uh, the dead are not being counted everywhere. They're, the dead are being undercounted across India. That's because the government does not want to show the uh, the truth behind the dead people. Because you know, it's an it's a big embarrassment not only for Modi's party but uh, for his political uh, gainers because they're fighting a couple of uh, states for elections. Uh, so, you know, uh, things are really, really bad at the moment. How are people trying to protect themselves? What are people doing? What's the, what's the person who can't get to the hospital and who is worried? What, what are, what are Indian, the people in India doing to protect themselves? I mean, I could get a sense of uh, such situation when I saw people posting pictures of their loved ones on Twitter, on Instagram, saying that, you know, my uh, my husband, my brother, my sister, their oxygen saturation level as 63, 65, 40. Please help me get an ICU bed. Please help me get a oxygen cylinder. But they're helpless because, you know, uh, there are no places for them to take to, to the hospital. And this is not happening only in uh, its capital, New Delhi. It's happening across India. Uh, people are dying. Uh, you know, uh, one, 134 journalists uh, died in India. Uh, since last year, and uh, out of them, 52 alone died this month, uh, in the month of April. So imagine people who are actually connected with the government and the facilities, like journalists, are dying. Imagine the the case for the uh, the ones who do not know people who are not connected on Twitter, who are not connected with the world. Uh, there are people who are being able to help each other on social media, but that's not the case with the common common Indian. You know, uh, we need to understand it's a it's a poor country where uh, about 40 to 50 percent of people, uh, you know, are live below poverty line. Not all journalists in India are willing to speak with foreign media. A number of Indian journalists said to me and, and texted me or direct messaged me saying we're too concerned about possible reprisals, so we won't speak to you. You've decided to speak to me. Why? 
first of all, I, I am from Kashmir, and uh, we Kashmir journalists always speak truth to the power, and that's what we do. That's what we have been doing all along uh, since I was born, probably. Uh, uh, of course, we are scared of the things because right now government is trying to, you know, attack journalists who talk to international media. If you see, there was an order uh, by the Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh. Uh, saying that whoever uh, you know asks for oxygen on social media or makes a hue and cry about it will be booked, and they actually booked uh, a man who was oxy- uh, asking for oxygen cylinder for her for his mother. But today, it's the, the highest court of India, Supreme Court, ruled out that uh, you know anybody asking for uh, basic uh, rights should not be prosecuted or should not be you know uh, uh, taken to jail. Uh, it's it's our duty to talk. to tell the truth about the current state of affairs if not us then who because you know we are the ones who are, who are watching the situation as it unfolds on the ground and uh, you know uh, it's our responsibility to tell the truth uh, i would really ask all the journalists around this country to speak the truth and to show the true image of india right now uh, you know things will not remain same but at least uh your reporting will be there and it will be always uh, chronicled across the, across the world for the generations to come we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Bonnie Lizick is the Auditor General for the province of Ontario. Ms. Lizick does a fantastic job of keeping governments accountable. Ms. Lizick, it's great to have you back on the program. Thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Rod. Appreciate it. Uh, I want to talk to you about your report on long-term care in the province of Ontario, which is has been a, a real, really significant um, disaster in the certainly in the first wave. You you you're quoted as saying, "Our work clearly confirmed that neither the Ministry of Long-Term Care nor the long-term care sector was sufficiently positioned, prepared, or equipped." to respond to the pandemic in an expedient and effective way. Would you please expand on that and then please tell us is there any reason for them not to have been ready? Yeah, I think there's a, a three sort of three big picture kind of issues around that. One is uh, I think when when the SARS uh, occurred in Ontario and there was an expert panel and there was a commission that took place that uh, put together recommendations so Uh, to prepare Ontario for the future in case there was a a pandemic uh, again, or, or you know something like like a SARS, and so the, a lot of those actions weren't acted on, and that was number one. And so you know the, the province wasn't prepared in terms of IPAC. There wasn't a pandemic plan at the long-term care homes, that type of thing, and the testing wouldn't have been fast enough because the public labs weren't expanded like SARS Commission had recommended. Secondly, um, there were ongoing concerns, and we've expressed them in our reports over the years about systemic weaknesses in the long-term care sector. You know, not enough hands to take care of people, infection prevention control issues. Um, there were number a number of issues that were identified that are systemic. 
um, the inspection process. And thirdly, um, there is a lack of integration on Ontario of the long-term care sector within the health care sector. So, you know, you have municipalities that looked after public health. You have the hospitals that report into the Ministry of Health. You have long-term care. Even when it reported into the Ministry of Health, um, it still was like a second cousin. I mean, there was a change now to report into a separate ministry, but there still needed to be more attention given to the sector. So those are the, the three broad I guess, issues that contributed to them not being ready when the pandemic um, hit Ontario and hit the long-term care. And they, and, they, and they didn't work together, did they? They weren't, they weren't in a collaborative uh, reality, the, uh, the government and the, and the long-term care homes. I think what we had is, um, you know, in terms of infection prevention and control, that is the expertise for that is in the public health units. Yet we had inspectors in the Ministry of Long-Term Care that had responsibility over inspections. So one of our recommendations is that the inspections of um, infection prevention control should be done by public health, and that information should be handed over to the inspectors in the Long-Term Care Ministry to do uh, incorporate in their work. So that was one key interface. The other is even the relationships between public health, hospitals, and long-term care um, there wasn't as many sort of um, agreements in place that would help um, the long-term care homes when something like this happened. Um, as well, what we had happening at the time is a lot of change happening in the healthcare sector um, and in long-term care. We had a new deputy minister, a new assistant deputy minister, right in March, and uh, all of that uh, didn't work, you know, uh, in the favor of uh, the residents of long-term care. It wasn't a mystery, uh, though, was it, Ms. Lizick? They knew what to do. They know what the, the expectations were. Your report shows that. It's, I mean, when, when you have a situation where in 2018 the, uh, the ministry actually ended um, annual inspections of, of long-term care homes, uh, it, just, it, it just falls by the wayside. And, and as you said, there are public health units that have the responsibility to uh, inspect all sorts of realities in, in the province, including uh, hair salons, mm-hmm. but, but, but not long-term care facilities. It doesn't make any sense. No, I think, um, you know, in terms of the inspection process, um, we had audited in 2015 and we saw they, there were some issues with them addressing incidences and complaints, and they were behind in that but we said they needed to incorporate those in their inspection process and really make sure they were inspecting the high, um, you know, the high risk uh, homes first, but still do all of them. They stopped doing inspections and decided not to do the comprehensive inspections toward the tail end of 2018 and just focus on clearing the complaints and incidences, which they had to do, but they didn't need to stop all the inspections. And so what we saw there is those comprehensive inspections were the ones that identified that there were weaknesses in infection prevention and control. So when they stopped doing them, they stopped identifying those issues and therefore also stopped, um, you know, following up on them. Having said that, public health expertise is definitely what's needed in that inspection realm versus um, the long-term care inspector expertise. Yeah, when, when the Ford government argues that it was their predecessors who were responsible for the problems. Uh, I'm not asking you to editorialize, but uh, your, your, your audit would suggest, I would think, that uh, they had responsibility and they knew what they should be doing and they just didn't do it. Fair yeah, comment? There's, there's some shared issues here. I mean, 
Yeah, historically, um, the system has been has not been working well, and and it and you know, if anything good comes out of 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 this experience, it's that hopefully this system will be changed for the future uh, residents of the home, so that um, these types of issues you know aren't continually discussed, right, and that mm-hmm. they're resolved. But I think uh, some of the decisions had consequences, you know, like moving people out of the hostels into the long term care homes. Right at a time when the care homes were at capacity and not and for the homes not to have enough space to isolate people uh, created a sort of a, a consequential impact and and also you know the decision not to allow family members in was done for the reason not to you know kind of um, support or help the spread of covid but yet the reality is some of those um, family members were the hands that supplemented the PSW workers to feed you know, to feed the residents and to help, you know, help change them and things like that. So there were some consequences out of the decisions. And, um, uh, you know, I think the isolation one is probably the biggest one. Um, a lot of these homes, about I think about 40% of the homes house three or four people per room. And that has been the design for years. So that's been a problem. Having said that, knowing that, um, you know, it, it would have been good to help the homes determine how to isolate people and perhaps have facilities available to move people in when isolation or quarantine was required. Right. But they were at almost 100% capacity when the patients were being transferred from the hospitals to the LTCs. And that, yeah. right, yeah. That, mean, that, that caused a huge problem. I mean, your, your re- report says, quote, given the homes were on average at 98% capacity prior to the pandemic, these transfers of patients designated as ALC added pressure to the homes, um, some of which were already struggling to contain the spread of COVID-19. They were already having difficulty. Correct, because I think the focus initially, it was a command table in the Ministry of Health. And so initially the focus was on um, clearing what they call alternative care patients, ALC patients, out of the hospitals, moving them into the long-term care because they were expecting a surge in the hospital's uh, workload. But I think um, I think we've highlighted there should have been awareness that, you know, what we were seeing happening in Italy with the COVID attacking more the, the older people, older population, that there was risk in doing that. But that was the decision. It was a focus on the hospitals to move people out of the hospitals into the long-term care. And so, you know, that just kind of compounded compounded the issues, right? Yeah. I have one more question for you. We have, of course, the vaccines are arriving. Uh, we, we keep hoping in greater numbers, and they are arriving in greater numbers, but we need them more quickly. But we also have, so is this, a, this is obviously a positive situation for, for people in long-term care facilities, but there are still, as you point out, systemic issues that can't be ignored. What's the bottom line advice that your report offers the government? Yeah, we have about 16 recommendations that are broken into about 55 actions. And one of the key is you need, um, you know, uh, workers that work in the homes. They're called PSWs. They're, they're about 61% of the employee base in the long-term care homes. You know, you need less, uh, you need you need more hands. And, and the government did, you know, to their credit, they are increasing the time that um, a per-person time of care that will be, attained in the future with the hiring of more PSWs. But there is high turnover in those staff, that staff group, and they need more training in infection prevention control, and they need um, 
some stability. That that employment base needs stability. And so we have recommendations around that and the training. There has been move. Um, I, I, we saw an announcement in the last week where there will be uh, more training available for PSWs and uh, somewhat of a regulatory model uh, over them. The other thing is just to think about long-term care in the context of the, all, everything else that has to be considered about when people are aging. So it's not just about building making rooms in long-term care facilities. It's about integrating that in the strategy around the use of home care in Ontario, assisted living, retirement homes, you know, um, and and that, that big picture, and health care. Yeah. So um, we do have a number of recommendations in both of those two areas. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.